Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome, everybody, to the Informed Secular Minds podcast. I am Corey, and I am joined today, once again, by Scott. He is El Duterino on the interwebs. You can follow him on Periscope and on Twitter, and I sincerely encourage you to do that. Um, uh, you may remember him from our, from our episode. A few episodes back, we did, a, we did a whole episode on simulation hypothesis, and he was uh, my guest host for that episode. It was a fantastic episode. If you haven't heard it, please go back and check that out. You can hear that on blogtalkradio.com, or you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Uh, it's, uh, you can just search for Informed Secular Minds, and you can find it there. I'll also put a tweet up at ismpodcast underscore afterwards so that everybody can find us on iTunes and get the content there. This week, we're going to do an episode on Scientology. This is something that, is, that has fascinated me for quite some time. I, I've always kind of, been, kind of been curious about it, interested in it, and I've learned uh, about it here and there uh, through my adult life. But we really wanted to, to stop and, and, and break it down uh, and kind of do a, a whole podcast episode on it. And in the course of, of preparing for the episode – we found out just how much there is to know. Uh, every time we, we learn something new, it would just open another door of, of strangeness that we, would, that we would begin to kind of investigate and then another one inside of that and another one inside of that. And so we ended up deciding that what we would do is we would do a double episode. Uh, we're going to do this one as part one today. And then next Wednesday, we'll do a follow-up episode where we'll cover all of the stuff that we don't have time to get to this episode. Um, before we really get started, I want to, as always, thank YoungAthlon399. That's his Periscope handle and his Twitter handle, YoungAthlon399. He helps us out with the Periscope side of things, and he is scoping the episode right now live. If you're following ISM Podcast underscore on Periscope, you can listen to the show there uh, if you're not listening to us on Blog Talk Radio right now. If at any point you want to call in and talk with us, if you've got a comment or a question, you want to talk with Scott or myself, you can reach us at 646-564-9551. I thought that I would take a few minutes, though, before we get into the wonderful world of Scientology. On this episode, it's our first show since the inauguration of the 45th President of the United States, and I wanted to talk about America a little bit. January 21st saw what might well be the largest demonstration in human history. Over 4 million people marched on all seven continents, and I was pleased to have the opportunity to take part in that. People keep telling me that we need to give Trump a chance. To this, I reply what is wrong with taking him at his word? Do those 
opposed to the peaceful marches of the past week think he's been lying about everything so far? And if so, why did they vote for him? If not, why should we wait for him to formally do the things he has promised? Wouldn't that be too late to do anything about it? What we are seeing right now is a test of character for the American people. My little piece of American society instilled in my young head that America stood for valor and honor and inclusion. My parents taught me about the melting pot of the United States, the open invitation to the world's tired and poor. I learned that we are a nation of immigrants and that the American dream suggests that by working hard we can go far and that all citizens are equal with the same chance at achieving that dream. As I grew up, I learned that America had a long history of discrimination and segregation. Those same immigrants that Lady Liberty welcomed with open arms were labeled and hated at various points in history. But in the decades that followed, those attitudes often thawed as our national character strived again and again for a more perfect union. We never stopped being bigoted and violent towards African Americans, and we never quite got over our hatred of the native peoples of North America. Our character remains blemished by these gross attitudes, but that doesn't destroy the progress we've made in other areas. The inclusive spirit of America helped us embrace the messy beauty of blending cultures and made the American character something greater than the sum of its parts. We have managed to keep our nation more or less secular across the span of the last 240 years. We chased the Nazis across Europe and helped liberate the continent from the grip of fascism. We developed new technologies and innovated new forms of art. We rebuilt after national tragedy and tried in our slightly stupid way to be a shining example to the rest of the world. Then the least popular candidate in history managed to secure the Electoral College and was sworn in as president. He has a lot to say. Here are some examples. On Gonzalo, on Gonzalo Curiel, Trump told CNN, he's a Mexican, as if that's self-explanatory. We're building a wall between here and Mexico. The answer is he is giving us very unfair rulings, rulings that people can't even believe. Curiel, it should be noted, is an American citizen who was born in Indiana, and as a prosecutor in the late 1990s, he went after Mexican drug cartels, making him a target for assassination by a Tijuana drug lord. Another quote from Trump, black guys counting my money. I hate it. The only kind of people I want counting my money are short guys wearing yarmulkes. Those are the only kind of people I want counting my money. Nobody else. Besides that, I tell you something else. I think that guy's lazy, and it's probably not his fault because laziness is a trait in blacks. John O'Donnell, a former president of Trump Plaza Hotel and Casino in Atlantic City, quoted Trump, saying to him in his 1991 book, In May 1997, Trump was asked about his comment during an interview with Playboy, and he confirmed that the stuff O'Donnell wrote about was probably true. On the president, the 44th president, Barack Obama, he doesn't have a birth certificate. Or if he does, there's something on that certificate that is very bad for him. Now, somebody told me, and I have no idea if this is bad for him or not, but perhaps it would be, that where it says religion, it might have Muslim. And if you're a Muslim, you don't change your religion, by the way. That was on an appearance in 2011 on the Laura Ingram show. He said that women who have abortions should be punished. He mocked a handicapped person with a jolting pantomime. He said he's allowed to grab women by the pussy because he's famous. He chose a vice president who has actively tried to reduce the rights of LGBTQ citizens and a cabinet who wants to reshape the country to help the greediest among us rather than work to keep the ever-dwindling American dream alive for anyone. The dialogue from Trump supporters are laced with anti-immigrant, anti-women, and anti-gay sentiments. 
In the battle for the American character, neo-Nazis have reemerged. Hate speech is back in fashion, and regressive ideas have support among a larger swath of the country than many of us thought possible. America is toying with the idea of redefining itself in the most drastic terms since World War II. When we march, it's not because we don't know that Mr. Trump is president. It's not because we are sore losers or whining babies. It's because the victories we hold dear are at risk of being dismantled. It's because we don't want anything to be taken for granted. It's because we are American and care enough to fight for her character. It's because we value some things over wealth or security or religious definitions of morality. It's because we are willing to take the new administration at its word when it says that women should have less access to birth control and health care resources. We believe Trump when he suggests we must greatly strengthen and expand its nuclear cap- capability. And Mike Pence when he says societal collapse was always brought about following an advent of the deterioration of marriage and family. We believe he means it when he calls being gay a choice and says keeping gays from marrying is not discrimination but an enforcement of God's idea. We march to remind power that we are still here and that we will not stand by silently while our neighbors are demonized or forcibly removed. We will not keep our head down while people who are still adjusting to open acceptance of their sexuality are bullied. We will not look away when women are objectified or have their rights weakened by Washington misogyny. We will help define the American character as one that is greater than the sum of its parts, a character that is made up of all citizens and has room for all of them, Christians and atheists, homosexuals and heterosexuals, liberals and conservatives, Muslims and Mexicans and white guys and women of all shapes and colors. We like our tapestry intact, thank you very much, and we will happily demonstrate our love for its rainbow of colors and its spectrum of ideologies. All right, that just about sums up my thoughts this week on America, and now for the worst possible transition. We're going to try to jump from that over to Scientology, the actual grand topic of the week. Scientology has been around for a little over half a century now. Uh, What we really found interesting about it is it's one of the two truly American religions, the first being Mormonism. These These are religions that were born inside of the United States after the foundation of the United States. They don't come from some ancient nation, some old culture. They come from right here. And while Mormonism is based on the older monotheisms, it's kind of the fourth Abrahamic religion after Islam. Scientology builds all of its mythology internally. It all ends up coming more or less from one guy. There's no earlier version of it that they're borrowing from or building upon as a framework. Instead, we can trace all of its teachings, the entire mythology, the way that it operates back to an individual named L. Ron Hubbard. This guy is fascinating. He is truly fascinating and very, very American. Um, And we thought that what we would do here is we would begin our conversation about Scientology with the man himself, L. Ron Hubbard. He was born Lafayette Ronald Hubbard in 1911 in Nebraska, but he grew up in Helena, Montana. That's not, that's not so awful far away from where I live. I've been to Helena several times. 
biographical accounts published by the Church of Scientology describe Hubbard as a child prodigy of sorts who rode a horse before he could walk and was able to read and write by the age of four. This is uh, interesting to me because it's, it's, it's common when you have a, a prophet or uh, an ecclesiastical uh, teacher in a religion to promote them uh, up into having some kind of uh, ability, some kind of power, some kind of legend that seems too good to be true. Uh, and you, and you write that right into the myth uh, of, of, of who this character is. Yeah. Um, the church insists that his grandfather was a wealthy rancher from, uh, who uh, L. Ron Hubbard inherited his fortune from. Um, but in reality, Hubbard's grandfather was a veterinarian and was not wealthy. Hubbard grew up in a townhouse, not on a ranch. Now, this young man did become an Eagle Scout two weeks after his 13th birthday. That is remarkable. That is impressive. Uh, to be able to, to do that, um, I was a Cub Scout, and then for like a, a very brief sliver of time, a Boy Scout, and you know, I, I was the the idea of becoming an Eagle Scout, um, which is quite an achievement for anyone um, at the age of thirteen. That's really something. Uh, that's, that is that's, pretty impressive. Uh, I mean, I was a Cub Scout, and I couldn't hack that really. <laughs> I didn't even go to the Boy Scouts, but several of my sergeants in the in the Army were actually uh, Boy Scouts. So it, it is a, a remarkable accomplishment at thirteen. Uh, he traveled in the late 1920s, including the Guam, the Philippines, um, Japan, and China. He disdained the poverty of the inhabitants of Japan and China, whom he described as gooks and lazy and ignorant. Uh, a quote from L. Ron Hubbard, a Chinaman cannot live up to a thing. He always drags it down. Uh, he characterized sites of Beijing as rubberneck stations for tourists and described the place, the palaces, of the Forbidden City as very trashy looking and not worth mentioning. Uh, he says, they smell of all the baths they didn't take. The trouble with China is there are too many chinks here. How gross is that? It's, I mean, it's pretty bad. I mean, I mean, you know, in the, in the, in the 1920s, perhaps it wasn't that rare to use terms like chinks not. and gooks. Right. Um, but still, to actually to actually go and and not be ethnocentric, to actually go and hang out in these places, to journey around in China uh, and and see it for himself, and still be able to be so so right. he, he just boils it down to nothing. It's, it's, That's uh, what he, struck me about this this quote was um, even even saying All right, let's give it the times, nineteen twenties, like. People will say now, well, it's grandma, and that's just the way they talked back then. Even excluding that, giving them that, that in the 20s it wasn't rare to say things like goof or chink. Um, the idea of being there, like you're saying, being there yourself, and to look at the Forbidden City palaces and think to yourself, those are trashy looking. I mean, I haven't had the opportunity to be there myself, but I've seen images of the Forbidden City's palaces, and they are breathtakingly beautiful in my opinion it's impressive so, yeah i don't know how and and so far before most civilizations so for you to just that, that to me it's showing this just um ingrained bias that he already had that he is not willing to overlook even when 
when he sees it, he's not struck by beauty. He's just like, you, they made it. So it must right. be trashy because I see them as trash anyway. Right. They, they, it, it's, it's clearly lesser because it was made by the right. Chinese. This, this, this attitude, too, that there must be some kind of fundamental flaw. A Chinaman cannot live up to a thing. He always drags it down. Like, you can't really generalize more than that. You're, you're just you're, – you're noticing something negative, some kind of trait that you think you can identify in all Chinese people. Uh, right. It's, it's, a, it's a gross narrative from the start. That, that, I mean, it, it opens up the door for – that um, in his worldview, they wouldn't even be needed on the planet because they never will be able to accomplish anything. They, would, they could only serve to uh, bog society down and bring it backwards. So in there his worldview, it seems to me that he just doesn't even want them here. Uh, Mr. Hubbard failed the Naval Academy entrance examination, but then he enrolled at the Swavely Preparatory School in Manassas, Virginia, to prepare him for a second attempt at the examination. However, he was ruled out of consideration due to his nearsightedness. Finally, he decided that uh, at the, at the, at the, with, with pressure from his father that he would go and study civil engineering during two years at George Washington University, but he dropped out of that institution uh, in 1932 after being put on academic probation. He said that he hated being in class uh, he didn't have any interest in actually engaging with the academia, and so he would just not go. Yeah, and and uh, the Scientology Church accounts uh, that he studied nuclear physics at George Washington University in Washington, D.C., before he started his studies about the mind, spirit, and life. And Hubbard himself stated that he set out to find out from nuclear physics a knowledge of the physical universe something entirely lacking in Asian philosophy. Uh, his university records indicate, though, that uh, his exposure to nuclear physics consisted of one class in atomic molecular phenomena for which he earned an F grade. According to church materials, there's, there's, this, there's, this, constant, there's this constant attempt from what we've, what we've been reading so far of the church to hold this guy up as just being incredible. He did all of this stuff for the first time. Anything, anything he tried his hand at, he just blew everybody else away. He was this renaissance man, this, this figure, you know, a jack of all trades. Anything that he put his mind to just came to him. And, and he, he excelled at it and, 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 and added to what was already known about it making discoveries all along the way, putting everybody else to shame. Yeah. He's, he's, you know, um, it, it, when you're saying that he, he didn't even have a, like he didn't like going to class. He didn't like the academia. But, and then he takes this, he wants to learn about um, life, you know, through, to apply it to his ideas of studying the mind through nuclear physics, but he fails the class. But it seems to me that uh, I don't think he even minds on the class. I think, he didn't want to go there and learn, like you're saying. He wasn't interested in it. He wanted to go there and get anything that he could out of it, extract nuggets from it that would help him support his already predetermined world. Right, 
Right. Any any little if I touch it, I can then tell everybody that I'm an expert at it. Right. It, it's like he's collecting credentials. Yeah, he, he, he's building his ethos. According to Church Materials, he 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 finally decides to go and and uh, and be a pilot. They say that he earned his wings as a pioneering barnstormer at the dawn of American aviation and was recognized as one of the country's most outstanding pilots with virtually no training time. He takes up powered flight and barnstorms through the Midwest. Um, according to his airman certificate, it records that he qualified to fly only gliders, not powered aircraft. And then he gave up his certificate when he could not afford the renewal fee. Um, this, this, we're, 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 we've like barely started on L. Ron Hubbard, and there's already uh, a constant trend of, of, well, I did a thing, and I was the best ever at that thing. Yeah, the, well, I mean, I, the church says that he was the best after, or best ever at those things, and, and I'm sure that he, you know, his persona as he developed the religion propagated that. But it seems to me that the pattern we're developing right now at the early age is that he starts something, doesn't finish it because he's no good at it, and then moves on, uh, dismissing it as not important anyway. Uh, he goes on an expedition in 1932, intending to film pirates and collect artifacts for museum exhibits. The trip was plagued with troubles and ultimately went bankrupt. Uh, he brought specimens and photographs collected by the expedition and uh, they're said by the Scientology to have been acquired by the University of Michigan, the U.S. Uh, Hydrographic Office, an unspecified National Museum, and the New York Times, uh, through one of those institutions, have any record of this. So far as helping us out in the chat, she actually found the lie about uh, about being a nuclear physicist. He said, I happen to be a nuclear physicist. I am not a psychologist, nor a psychiatrist, nor a medical doctor. Uh, that was in a 1952 lecture, Dianetics, the Modern Miracle. Um, so, took one class and failed it. I'm a nuclear physicist. Yeah. Uh, to learn to fly a guiders, I'm the best pilot ever. <laughs> After leaving university, Hubbard traveled to Puerto Rico on what the Church of Scientology calls the Puerto Rican Mineralogical Expedition. Scientologists claim he made the first complete mineralogical survey of Puerto Rico as a means of augmenting his father's pay with a mining venture, during which he sluiced inland rivers and crisscrossed the island in search of elusive gold, as well as carrying out much ethnological work amongst the interior villages and native hillsmen. Hubbard's unofficial biographer, Russell Miller, writes that neither the United States Ge Geological Survey nor the Puerto Rican Department of Natural Resources have any record of any such expedition. So that's, that's two expeditions that haven't happened. Or there's no right. record of collecting anything from or them being successful in any way. Perhaps he touched Puerto Rico at some point, and then he can't help. It's almost like he's a pathological liar. He can't help it. He's got to inflate his ego. He's got to he, – he needs 
he needs to make a legend of himself. Mm. Um, according to author Jay Fox, a contributor to John W. Campbell's Astounding Magazine, Hubbard told a 1948 convention of science fiction fans that a book that he wrote called Excalibur. The inspiration for this, for this book came during an operation in which he died for eight minutes. Jerry Armstrong, Hubbard's archivist, explains this as a dental extraction performed under nitrous oxide, which of course is a chemical known for its hallucinogenic effects. Yeah, uh, Hubbard realized that while he was dead, he had received a tremendous inspiration, a great message which he must impart to others. He sat at his typewriter for six days and nights, and nothing came out. Then Excalibur emerged. Arthur J. Banks, the president of the American Fiction Guild, wrote that an excited Hubbard called him and said, I want you to see, I want to see you right away. I have written the book. Hubbard believed that Excalibur would revolutionize everything and that it was somewhat more important and would have a greater impact upon, upon people than the Bible. It proposed that all human behavior could be explained in terms of survival and that to understand survival was to understand life. As Hubbard, Hubbard uh, biographer John Attack <clears throat> notes, the notion that everything that exists is trying to survive became the basis of Dianetics and Scientology. I love that. I have written the book. <laughs> he's yeah, he's convinced. Just, this is an not early, even like. I don't even think the authors of the Bible were like, "This is the book." You know, it, the Gideons may call it the book <laughs> and put it in right, every hotel right. they can, but to write it and like you know, you just put down the the pen or you just. You just stretch out your fingers, and then you call up your friend. The Bible was written by lots of people over a long period of time. Right. They wouldn't even Expel have time to get together and, and claim it as such. This, this book just, just poured right out of him. Um, now, he had, he had been writing for, for a little while. Um, Hubbard, especially in the early years, was chronically broke. Um, and he was pretty good at fiction. In fact, he, he knew um, Isaac Asimov. He, he knew some of the, some of the other um, sci-fi writers of his day. And they seem to have, to have gotten along somewhat. Um, they seem to have, to have been all right with each other, though they're not really mentioned later on. Once he's actually talking about Dianetics and stuff, um, they don't, they don't really seem to be as involved, but, but he would, he would, you know, we were we were uh, quoting somebody who was writing about uh, Astounding magazine. He would write uh, Pulp Fiction. This was this was like his day job. He would. Uh, there are several other other magazines like this too, where you know they're they're like little dime magazines that you would buy, and they would just be full of uh, hastily constructed, quickly printed um, uh, Pulp Fiction, science fiction, fantasy, sometimes even romance. Uh, and he would go and he would he would pump this stuff out. Now he was getting paid a lot of times a penny a word, so he had to write a lot in order to make any kind of any kind of money. Um, and so he would he would just sit down and 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 write and write and write and write uh, in order to uh, to meet deadlines and to make as much money as he possibly could. 
there's a, there's an anecdote about how he would write so frantically. He would just sit there and, and type on his typewriter so fast that he would sweat and the sweat from his brow would fall into the typewriter and, and jam it up. It would, it would, it would stain the paper and it would, it would fuck up what he was doing. So he would get several of them prepared because he would like type until he broke a typewriter <laughs> and then he would just move to the next one and keep going. Um, because he didn't want to stop. He would, once he had an idea, he was, he was incredibly prolific. He would just get an idea and, and, and punch out like a hundred thousand words a month. Just, just, just constantly, constantly uh, producing all of this content. And a lot of it, you know, it's not like he's taking the time to, to build a story structure and figure out all of the things that he wants to say and build the exact story ahead of time and then write it with some kind of expertise He's reasonably talented at writing, and so he's just coming up with ideas and and punching them up at breakneck speed. It's um, all first drafts. Exactly, exactly. And uh, um, you know, this leads to that. Um, what is it? Guinness Book of World Records. Like he has, he holds a record for most published books of all time. Something like a thousand books. Yeah, most published books of all time. Uh, he's considered the most prolific author in history. Uh, Scientology doctrine alone consists of over 20 million words written by Hubbard. That's a huge amount. 20 million words is insane. Um, he also, just as a side note, he also holds the world record for the most audiobooks ever published for a single author. Um, although I don't think that he was uh, that that he was like recording them himself. They they, they did them the narrator for them. Yeah, that would be kind of sweet though. Actually, hearing L. Ron Hubbard read L. Ron Hubbard. Oh man, because then you could hear the uh, love uh, for himself. Yeah, yeah, you'd be able to hear. You know where? Where I'd like to hear. Like, where does he put the emphasis on his words? And and does yeah. he get excited about the story and and get all amped up about it, or does he read it monotone? How can he control his his uh, his diction during all of that? Um, by most accounts, he was he was at least scatterbrained. Some people, including his son. Uh, have said that they think he's 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 mentally like he's not he's not balanced. There there's something there's something wrong with his uh, with his with his brain. Other people, of course, think he was just a genius, and uh, this is how it manifested itself. Um, there's he a wrote fine line book, between genius and insanity. Truly, truly, there is. Um, he wrote this book, Excalibur, the one that he said would revolutionize everything. The thing that he called the book. This is still fairly early. Um, as Scott said, this ends up going on to become the basis of Dianetics. He hasn't even gotten to Dianetics yet, which is like book one of Scientology. Right. Um, he, he, everything, everything was very, very important in the moment. He, he wrote this, this, this story and just got so, so into it that he thought, oh, this is, this is the greatest thing ever. Um, according to the president of the American Fiction Guild, um, Arthur Burks, Hubbard was so sure he had something away out and beyond anything else that he had sent telegrams to several book publishers telling them again that he had written the book and that they were to meet him at Penn Station and he would discuss it with them and go with whomever gave him the best offer. However, nobody bought the manuscript. Forrest J. Ackerman, later Hubbard's literary agent, recalled that Hubbard told him, Whoever read it either went insane or committed suicide. 
and he said that the last time he had shown it to a publisher in New York, he walked into the office to find out what the reaction was. The publisher called for the reader. The reader came in with the manuscript, threw it down on the table, and threw himself out of the skyscraper window. Just reading this, this, this is so revolutionary and so crazy that the human, the human mind snaps upon reading it. It's so powerful, this book Excalibur, that people are either going insane or committing suicide when they read it. Hubbard thinks that he witnessed a guy yeah. throw himself yeah. through a window. <laughs> he actually just like, done, and out the window, <laughs> and he watched this happen. Dive. Yeah, right. He was actually a witness to this event, apparently. Uh, his failure to sell Excalibur depressed him. He told his wife in a letter. He, 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 he wrote a letter in October of 1938 to his wife saying, um, writing action pulp doesn't have much agreement with what I want to do because it retards my progress by demanding incessant attention and, further, actually weakens my name. So you see, I've got to do something about it and at the same time, strengthen the old financial position. He went on, sooner or later, Excalibur will be published, and I may have a chance to get some name recognition out of it, so as to pave the way to articles and comments which are my ideas of writing heaven, foolishly perhaps, but determined nonetheless. I have high hopes of smashing my name into history so violently that it will take a legendary form, even if all books are destroyed, this goal is the real goal, as far as I am concerned. Um, it, it's interesting to me that uh, the default of Excalibur not being published at that time or not being taken at the time is, is not the writing. It's not his own. It's the fact that he's bogged down with his attention elsewhere on this other stuff to earn money. And that, um, as you can tell from the thing above, that it's just the the regular human minds that try to read it that can't comprehend it and go insane and kill themselves. It has nothing to do with him or the writing. That's not why it failed. <laughs> right. Right. He surely would have sold it if these weak-minded fools had only been able to uh, handle the amazing things that he had written down on paper. <laughs> I, 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 I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this again. I have high hopes of smashing my name into history so violently that it will take a legendary form, even if all books are, destro are destroyed. That goal is the real goal as far as I am concerned. He is obsessed with becoming famous, and not just like Hollywood famous, not just popular, but legendary in a historical sense. He Changing the way society operates. Right. He wants to make discoveries. He wants to find something that makes him a name like, like Freud. Like he wants to become an absolute historical figure. And that goal is the real goal. I mean, from the beginning, he hasn't even started the church yet. No. It, the and idea might, hasn't probably even occurred to him yet. Unbelievable. The manuscript later became part of Scientology mythology. An early 1950s Scientology publication offered signed, gold-bound, and locked copies of Excalibur for the sum of $1,500 apiece. Today, that would be about 
It also warned that four of the first 15 people who read it went insane and that it would be released only on sworn statement not to, per- not to permit other readers to read it. Contains data not to be released during Mr. Hubbard's stay on Earth. <laughs> uh, it just flashed in my in my mind the uh, I don't know why, but the movie Scrooge when he he runs the uh, the the trailer for his Scrooge, and it's not the nicey trailer that they want, but it's like showing all this horrible stuff, murders and and crack addicts and everything, and then. Later on, he gets a, a copy of a newspaper saying that a woman had a heart attack while watching his ad that he put out. And he <laughs> kind of bends his head down and he goes, this is terrific. I want that ad run every hour on the hour with a disclaimer saying people who have a heart condition should leave the room immediately. It's a, it's a brilliant <laughs> PR scam to just draw attention to it. But right, not concerned right. with uh, safety at all. No, it's it's just uh, good. But if a few people die to promote a film, that's fine. Uh, that's it, you fine. know, people are going insane just from reading this text, and that's a selling point for him. I love this idea that that it's so powerful that a certain combination of English words on printed paper is so powerful that you have to lock the book. Might as well sell it for for uh, you know thousands yeah. and thousands of dollars. Uh, but you know, beware that if you do read it and don't read it until after he's dead. You very well might go insane. You got you got you got a, a one in three chance basically of going yeah. insane if you dare unlock your thirty thousand dollar book. Yeah, Hubbard defined perversion in his nineteen fifty one book, Science of Survival: Prediction of Human Behavior, where he introduced the concept of the tone scale, a means of classifying individuals and human behavior on a chart running from plus forty, the most beneficial to minus 40, the least beneficial. Sexual perversion, a category in which he included homosexuality, was termed covert hostility and given a score of 1.1. The level of the pervert, the hypocrite, the turncoat, the subversive. He considered such people to be skulking cowards who yet contain enough uh, perfidious energy to strike back, but not enough courage ever to give warning. Hubbard urged society to tackle the issue of sexual perversion, including homosexuality, calling it of vital importance if one wishes to stop immortality immorality, and the abuse of children. In the science of survival, he called for drastic action to be taken against sexual perverts, whom he rated as 1.1 individuals. Such people should be taken from the society as rapidly as possible and uniformly institutionalized. For here is the level of the contagion of immorality and the destruction of ethics. Here is the fodder which secret police organizations use for their filthy operations. One of the most effective measures of security that a nation threatened by war could take would be rounding up and placing in a containment away from society any 1.1 individual who might be connected with government, the military, or essential industry, since there are people who, regardless of any record of their family's loyalty, are potential traitors, the very mode of operation of their insanity being betrayal. In this level is the slime of society, the sex criminals, the political subversives, the people whose apparently rational, rational activities are yet but the devious writhings of secret hate." 
That's um, no. Go ahead. I'm just that's processing. that's fascism. Well, that's, it, it, that's there's complete. there's like yeah, and like um, it rings of uh, eugenics. Right. Yeah, it's uh, it's 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 practically Orwellian in some in some senses. Like even if the family swears loyalty, there are still potential right. traitors because one of them might but, be gay. Right. It's a it's a it potential. They haven't done anything yet, but the fact that they probably think that way. Mm. The idea that that one deluded man could use a twisted and limited interpretation of psychology to determine the numerical value of human beings and then further declare that they should be locked up in concentration camps is dangerous enough. But when married to religious doctrine, it becomes downright evil. Okay. This basically brings us to Dianetics. We've established that L. Ron Hubbard is a pathological liar. Um, he's basically a narcissist. He's obsessed Probably with a himself. Sure. Uh, the, his, his ego knows no bounds. He must build this legend of himself. He is, he is desperate to smash himself violently into the history books, to make discoveries that no one else has made. And every one that he claims is debunked is rejected as not being true uh, and isn't quite big enough for what he wants. It also isn't paying very well. You know, being the, being the first guy to, ge- to do a, a geographical survey of Puerto Rico wasn't, wasn't bringing in a lot of monthly income. <laughs> yeah. He's the first guy to completely do the mineralogical uh, tables for the entire place. Yeah. Right, right. So he's, he's, he's toyed with this and that. He's figured out that he needs to become hugely, hugely famous. Um, he's wrote Excalibur, which basically, uh, as the book, as the thing that's going to be uh, more impactful on humans than the Bible itself. Um, than the Bible the, the, itself. Even bigger than the Bible, it, it, like the Beatles, bigger than Jesus. He's, he's creating a, a narrative in Excalibur where everything can be explained by the, the drive for survival. Everything can be boiled down to our need to survive, a desire to survive, and he builds that in as if it's psychology, um, again, almost, almost Freudian. Like you can, you can look at any behavior, and you can, you can determine uh, that that behavior can be guessed at and predicted – because we can understand what makes people want to survive, and then that morphs into this idea that we can numerically value people on this scale that he invented as to whether or not they are going to help the rest of society prevail in its attempt to survive. If they're going to be beneficial. It's almost like um, trying to implement a Darwinian kind of thing. Like what, what the, the, the theology rails against with atheism is that Oh, you just want to you just want to live in a Darwinian world system. That would be horrible. And we we typically agree, yeah, it would be if it was just who can live and who can't. That would be a horrible place to live. And it seems like that's what he's trying to build society on is who who's who's beneficial, who could live, and who doesn't matter. When we tie all these things together, I think 
I think we can we can see what was going on in this person's head as he came up with his his next attempt, uh, building on the ideas of Excalibur, convincing himself that that you know what he dreamed up while getting a tooth extracted, and then expounded upon right. in his internal uh, worldview. Get it right. It wasn't just a tooth extracted. He he died. For eight minutes. He died for eight minutes, right? <laughs> he died for eight minutes, and uh, things were revealed to him. Um, he's he's already got some prejudice issues. He's not he's not he doesn't like people in China. Um, you know, we're not we're not big fans of of gay people. There must be no. something wrong with the world, uh, and perhaps we could come up with a kind of sort of psychology adjacent way of dealing with the world's problems. And out of this, fire is forged Dianetics. And this word comes from the Greek dia, meaning through, and nous, meaning mind. It's a set of ideas and practices regarding the metaphysical relationship between the mind and body. Uh, Dianetics is practiced by followers of Scientology, of course, but there are also independent Dianeticist groups. Uh, And this is something that I learned about like a few hours ago. Scientology, small as it is, uh, and new as it is, doesn't have a lock on this stuff. There are other groups in the world that, that, that are not associated with Scientology, and in fact, some of them have been sued by Scientology for printing materials about Dianetics without the proper copyright. And these groups also believe in Dianetics. They just don't fall in with all of the other, you know, the weird stuff that Scientology is into. They do their own thing separate from that. Um, any, any church, man, any church will have groups splinter off. You're going to have denominations. It's going to happen. Um, Dianetics has achieved no acceptance as a scientific theory and is widely considered to be pseudoscience. Dianetics divides the mind into three parts, the conscious analytical mind, the subconscious reactive mind, and the somatic mind. The goal of Dianetics is to erase the content of the reactive mind which Scientologists believe interferes with a person's ethics, awareness, happiness, and sanity. The Dianetics procedure to achieve this erasure is called auditing. In auditing, the Dianetic auditor asks a series of questions or commands and elicits answers to help a person locate and deal with painful experiences of the past, which Scientologists believe to be the content of the reactive mind. This is where we should, we should probably take a moment and say um, Scientologists totally believe in reincarnation. I actually, I actually looked this up on, on the official Scientology website, and they, they have a lot of flowery language. I, there's this tactic that they use where they, they will often compare themselves to other religions like, well, any religion makes crazy claims. So we do too. Any religion is concerned with the origin of the universe. That's why we do it. Like they always, they never say what we're saying is true. They always say other stuff is weird. So it's okay for our right. stuff to be weird. That's how they sell it. They just lump it in with all of the other ridiculous. This is part of why religion is kind of generally a bad idea for where I'm standing. Now they make the point to say that there are two kinds of reincarnation. There's, there's the, there's the kind that, that we, that we kind of, you know, it's almost like the one that's tied with karma where you can be reincarnated in a different form. Like 
maybe you're a good human, and so afterwards you get to be a, like a richer human, or you are you are a real shitbag, and so you end up coming back as like a dog or an insect or something like that. Yeah. yeah. And if you do better in that form during your next life, then maybe you can move back up the ladder. There's like this sliding scale where you're always being punished or rewarded by the reincarnation system um, to 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 make you you know, to reward you with a body that, that fits your principle. Scientology doesn't, doesn't go for that one. They go for the alternative definition, which suggests that you're always reincarnated as another person. Um, you die as a, as a human being. It doesn't matter if you're good or bad. You come back as another human being and another human being, and another human being after that. So right. they completely subscribe to that version um, of reincarnation. Practitioners of Dianetics believe that the basic principle of existence is to survive and that the basic personality of humans is sincere, intelligent, and good. The drive for goodness and survival is distorted and inhabited by aberrations ranging from simple neuroses to different psychotic states to various kinds of sociopathic behavior patterns. Hubbard developed Dianetics claiming that it could eradicate these aberrations. The idea, and we're gonna we're gonna get to the the stuff that that most people already know about Scientology uh, in a bit. We're gonna get to, to to the actual mythology, the the just the the stupefying, gleeful insanity of their story, um, and that does tie directly into explaining why this why this process um, is required. But basically what they're saying is that by interviewing people in a certain way and applying this psychological idea that you've got to reject these, these, these memories from, from former lives, uh, you, can, you can become a, a better person. That anything that's in your way as an individual, anything that's harming you, anything that's keeping you from achieving your dreams is because of part of your brain remembering stuff that you don't understand and that's that's causing problems for for a couple of reasons that we will that we will expound upon uh fairly shortly um i I heard a it really is yeah all of this is just the is just the first coat we got we got the the really the really whoa shit uh yet to come there was this quote and uh it was it was from uh, a guy in scientology and he was talking about what he would do when he was out trying to recruit people. Um, and he would, he would try to explain these generals and say, basically, whatever you're trying to achieve that you can't achieve, that's because you haven't gone through the Dianetics process yet. If you're trying to get that, that great job and you haven't made it yet, if you're trying to break into Hollywood and become an actor and it's not working for you, if you're, if you're, if you're struggling with your studies, if you're you know, trying to get somebody to marry you, whatever your problem is, Wink, wink. The concern here, we can fix all that as long as we apply Dianetics to you. We've got to do this auditing. We've got to get you going on that. It's, it's classic. It's whatever your problem is, I can explain why it's a problem, and I can fix it. Come with me. His quote was, it's an applied religious philosophy, philosophy not just something to pray at an altar about. There's this proactive element, right? It's kind of like... Um, the power of positive thinking, but 
also with a whole bunch of pseudoscience bullshit attached to it. It's it's all right. it's kind of like uh, uh, motivational speaking. And um, sort of sets up the groundwork for putting it on you. If it fails, it wasn't it. It was you not use it, utilizing it properly. If this this works, so if you're not getting it, right, that's clearly your fault. It's it's a lot like uh, like some of the theologies. Uh, you got to want to believe in order to believe. If you accept it all as true, then you'll understand how it's true. When you're doing auditing, uh, they use this this technology called an e meter. Um. An e-meter is, is, is one-third of a lie detector, basically. It, it, it reads electrodermal activity. So if, if, you, if you have an instrument that can, that can measure it, we, have, we produce electricity as human beings. Um, and and you, can, you can feel it, on the, not, not like with your hand, but you can sense it in the skin. It's called electrodermal activity. When you, when you, when you use an e-meter, you hold on to basically two objects. In the old days, they were just aluminum cans. Uh, they've... they've you know, made it a little fancier these days, but it's, it's the principle is the same. You hold these two conductors in your hands and that completes a, a circuit with your electrodermal uh, uh, current. And then you, you plug a, a needle into that on a gauge. And as you, as you talk, you know, that, that electric field might, might fluctuate, change a little bit here and there. And so they mark down when that changes compared matched up to, to what it is that you're saying. So if you say something and the needle moves a little bit, it's very, very sensitive. Uh, if it, if it moves a little bit from the auditor's perspective, then obviously that must mean that you have found an engram, you have found some memory, you have found yeah. something that we need to talk about in order to, to get rid of it by something applying that dianetics. Just, that you just put too much focus on. If, if you added a respiratory monitor and a heart rate monitor, you would have a lie detector. They just don't bother with those two things. The lie detectors are already notoriously uh, untrustworthy. They're, you can't use them right. in court. But this is, this is only a third of that. Like it doesn't even have, it doesn't even have the extra stuff attached to it. Trustworthy as the already not trustworthy one. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if you needed any evidence that this is complete pseudoscience, you know you can build this in your garage. And uh, here's this thing uh, that's uh, completely not even admissible in uh, court because it's so inaccurate. And uh, let's take a third of it and base our worldview off of that. Right. Uh, they make claims about it that that it actually measures the mass of thoughts. The mass of thoughts. The mass of thoughts, like they're tangible. As if you could do such a thing, if you could measure thought. <laughs> um, it's, it's, I mean, any, any level of critical thinking here breaks Dianetics pretty easily. Um, but before we, before we get too far into why auditing is, is, is something that you would want to do in the first place, we need to explain uh, the basics of what Scientologists believe. Scientologists affirm the existence of a deity without defining or describing its nature. Uh, L. Ron Hubbard explains in his book, Science of Survival, no culture in the history of the world, save the thoroughly depraved and expiring ones, has failed to affirm the existence of a supreme being. It is an empirical observation that men without a strong and lasting faith in a supreme being are less capable, less ethical, and less valuable. Instead of defining God, Members assert that reaching higher states of enlightenment will enable individuals to make their own conclusions about the Supreme Being. 
And then um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with it. If you've seen any Scientology buildings or uh, the website or whatever, they have a, a symbol. It's two triangles kind of pointing to the right with an S uh, in between them. They are the ARC and KRC triangles. They are concept maps, which show a relationship among three concepts to form another concept. Uh, the KRC triangle is the uppermost triangle. It combines the components of knowledge, responsibility, and control. The Scientologist must gain knowledge of, take responsibility for, and effectively exert control over elements of his or her environment. Uh, the ARC triangle is the lower triangle. It is a summary representation of the knowledge of that a Scientologist strives for. It combines three components. Affinity is a degree of affection, love, or liking, uh, like an emotional state. Reality reflects consensual reality, that is, agreements on what is real. And communication, believed to be the most important element of the triangle, is the exchange of ideas. Scientologists believe that improving one of the three aspects of the ARC triangle, increasing the level uh, of the other two, must be important aspects of this triangle. Uh, the most important aspect of this triangle is communication, mainly because communication drives the other two aspects, affinity and reality. Scientologists believe that ineffective communication is a chief cause of human survival problems, and this is reflected by efforts at all levels within the movement to ensure clear communication, the presence of unabridged standard dictionaries, for example, being an established feature of Scientology centers. Scientologists believe that the three elements are fundamental between individuals in that to communicate with a person, one must have some affinity for him or her. Uh, as Dorothy Resfield Christensen describes it, According to Scientology doctrine, the break in the flow of ARC that hinders survival must be handled in auditing. The two triangles are connected by the letter S, standing for SIO, Latin for I know. Church of Scientology doctrine defines SIO as knowing in the fullest sense of the word. It links the two triangles together. Skio. This is where... And we were we were talking to some to some friends of ours uh, over the last couple of nights as we were kind of delving into this and trying to process it, you know, little by little. We were like breaking off chunks and then and then commenting and trying to digest it. And we were talking with some of our friends, and there was a general sense, especially after reading this, that uh, it's kind of appealing. Yeah, there's a there's an aspect in. Um, in taking control of yourself and your environment and, um, you know, uh, improving your communication with the people that you do have affinity for, that you have affection for, you want to be clear and concise in the way you talk to them. You want to be confident in the way that you, you handle your environment and the, and the situations around you. So there's an absolutely appealing aspect to, to it, for sure. It's, uh, it's like self-help. And, and there's obviously for a long time been a big market for that, uh, you know, how to, how to be more assertive, how to get the things that you want, how to express your deepest, desire, whatever it is, that's, that's like really, really common. And it's very American. Um, the, the self-help concept, I'm sure that it exists elsewhere as well, but it seems to be a big, big deal here. Every bookstore I've ever been in has had a self-help section. Um, and this is kind of playing to that, this idea that whatever it is that you're missing, wherever you feel you're weak, 
we can make it better, or rather, you can make it better, and we can show you how. Yeah. Um, the roots of Scientology are tangled up in self-help, science, science fiction, and I think a little mysticism. Much like a tree growing too close to a fence, the tree grows around and encompasses the fence and posts until they become one. The fence isn't a typical aspect of the tree. The tree would be fine on its own. It doesn't need the strength of the fence, but there's no doubt that this relationship adds a bit of stability to both the tree and the fence. The religion of Scientology has grown up so close to science and science fiction that it grew around those concepts and claims them as its own to strengthen its position on the world stage as a viable view of reality. We we had a uh, question from uh, R. Hamilton X. He asked, why were early believers so convinced by this obvious con man? It, it seems like – well, I guess we talked about that a little bit just in, in, in most people – most people have some problem. We, we, we kind of naturally feel like, oh, there's always something more. The grass is always greener and all of those notions. Um, but that question, I mean, why does anybody – why is it that the vast majority of the human population is eager to be conned? By various theologies. Scientology is a small one. For Do sure. we think that Scientology, that these ideas are playing on the same desire to believe that are felt by Christians and Muslims and Hindus and so forth? It seems that it does, like, on the face of it. Like, like other cults, they, it, they just... They get the people who are disenfranchised with something in their life, some aspect of their life or some aspect of society. And I think that they're just so willing to, to go, like you're saying, to the obvious comment, because at least this is an answer. Like, this is giving me some kind of answer, whereas the, the I don't know is, is too scary for, I, I assume, a majority of people. Right. We're, um, we're very inquisitive. Humans are very curious about things. Uh, we, we, we want to control our environment. We want to understand our environment. And it's kind of beyond our natural senses to just fit it all together. We need science and research and experimentation in order to discover principles. Um, I mean, we were still playing with what exactly gravity is, you know, like a few hundred years ago. Um, we're, we're, we're always trying to understand more things. And I think that's natural. I think that humans are inherently explorers and we like to explore, uh, not just like going into the jungle or, or crossing, uh, North America, like Lewis and Clark did, but we're, we also want to explore just the basic nature of reality. We want to explore how things operate. And when we don't have those answers and we want them, we're willing to turn to extraordinary answers because it helps us sleep at night. It, it, make, it makes us, it makes us more satisfied. When Dianetics was first published, it exploded. You know, he, he thought that he would have some modest success with it. I forget the, I forget the numbers now. He, he only planned on like 15,000 copies or something. And it skyrocketed to near the top, like, four or five on the New York times bestsellers list and stayed there. It became like uh, in the, in the fifties, like a national craze. It was like a fad 
Um, everybody was talking about it. L. Ron Hubbard was traveling the country, giving speeches about it. Um, he was doing all these talks at, at universities and, and uh, you know, campuses, town halls, whatever, uh, collecting paying fees in order to describe how Dianetics was working. And that feeling is exactly what he was looking for. He was finally getting recognition, recognition he thought he deserved. He was finally famous. People were taking him seriously. They were convinced that Dianetics was real. And I think that while he was already basically convinced, that kind of reaffirmation, um, that kind of validation just gave him what he was – turned you, it into the cult-like ideas that followed. Uh, you and I watched a, a video where he's talking about that, about Dianetics being on the number one solo list, and he's as giddy as a schoolgirl. I mean, he is mm. just ear-to-ear smile, so pleased. And, I mean, who wouldn't be? But – you know, when you're looking back as to what his goal was and how he wanted to smash his name into history, you can just you can feel that coming right out of it. Zafara makes a good point. She said it was not a religion at first either. It was a path to success. Yeah, exactly. It was it was uh, a, a way of, of clearing your mind and a way of of fixing whatever problems you had. It was about self-determination. It was about um, self-control. And, and, you know, unlocking your potential, so to speak. Hubbard introduced the Scientology cross in the 1950s as the central symbol for the church. It didn't take long for him to get that kind of attention and decide that he should move forward. Eventually, eventually the phase died, the, the craze died down and people, you know, it, it, they had read it and they had tried it and, uh, you know, not everybody had an e-meter. Not everybody was having that that confessional kind of catharsis that one gets when you're when you're sitting across from someone and telling them uh, all about your your deepest memories, and they're reinforcing anything that you make up and 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 blending the lines, blurring the lines between imagination and actual memory. Um, it, it began to it began to lose steam, and he was very concerned about that. He was he was quoted as saying to his wife that the only way to make any real money in this world is to have a religion. And as he was watching Dianetics kind of, kind of slip a bit in the American zeitgeist, he thought, oh, the best way, the best way to move forward here is to, is to double down, re-solidify this and make it into a church. Uh, turn, it into a form, turn it into a religion, make it, uh, make it something that, that can, that can survive past, um, the, the fleeting attention of the population. So um, in the 50s, he, he created this, this, this central symbol. He described the eight points of the cross as symbolizing the eight dynamics or eight measures for survival that all human beings have, which includes the urge to service as a spiritual being and the urge to survive as a godlike entity. Hubbard writes that survival is moving away from death and towards immortality and that human beings are constantly on the search for feelings of pleasure and motivated by the avoidance of pain. Um, what we want to do here is we want to uh, read the eight dynamics to you. Um, the first dynamic is the urge towards survival of self, the idea that he first talked about in Excalibur, reinvented in uh, Dianetics and then republished afterwards as he formed the church. The first dynamic being just the urge towards survival of self. 
The second dynamic is the urge towards survival through sex or children. This dynamic actually has two divisions. The second dynamic A is the sexual act itself. And the second dynamic B is the family unit, including the rearing of children. The third dynamic is the urge towards survival through a group of individuals or as a group. Any group or part of an entire class could be considered to be a part of the third dynamic. The school, the club, the team, the town, the nation are examples of groups. Now, the fourth dynamic is the urge towards survival through all mankind as well and as all mankind. The fifth is the urge towards survival through life forms such as animals, birds, insects, fish, and vegetation, and is the urge to survive as these. The sixth dynamic is the urge towards survival as the physical universe and has its components uh, and as its components matter, energy, space, and time, from which we derive the word mest. That's an important one. Remember that. M-E-S-T, matter, energy, space, and time, mest. The seventh dynamic is the urge towards survival through spirits or as a spirit. Anything spiritual, with or without identity, would come under the seventh dynamic. A subheading of this dynamic is ideas and concepts such as beauty, and the desire to survive through these. The eighth dynamic is the urge towards survival through the supreme being, or more exactly, infinity. It's difficult so far to pin down exactly what Scientology's attitudes are towards life after death, exactly how reincarnation happens, what mechanic this determines how that works. Um, there's, there's, there's very little. It, it's always kind of vague. Um, I'm, I, we, we have found that Scientology is very good at, at talking a whole lot and saying nothing. Um, the more that we compare what people who were in the church are saying to how the church itself represents uh, its religion, the more you notice that they have a lot of verbiage, but there's not a whole lot actually being said. You can, you, can, you can read it, and you feel like you're reading something, and it's all very pretty. It's nice language, but it doesn't actually give you any information. There's very little knowledge actually coming out of this. Hubbard found some of his inspiration for some of the science of Scientology in science fiction writings. While it promotes science, it distorts it as well. Science fiction writer A.E. Van Vaught based the early development of Dianetics and Scientology on a novel, uh, on a novel based on general semantics, a pseudoscience created by Alfred Korzybski for the purpose of curing personal and social issues. There was an appetite for this. People were, were yeah. interested. Uh, for a while, um, General Semantics as a self-improvement and therapy program began in the 1920s. Uh, so, yeah, a long time. And um, that, that program, General Semantics, sought to regulate human mental habits and behaviors after partial uh, launching, it came, it came out under uh, different names of originally um, human engineering, it was called, and then humanology. 
And then um, the Polish-American originator, Alfred Risky, um, he fully launched a program as General Semantics in 1933 uh, with the publication of Science and Sanity, an introduction to non-Aristotelian systems and general semantics. In Science and Sanity, general semantics uh, is presented as both a theoretical and practical system whose adoption can reliably um, after human behavior or uh, alter human behavior in the direction of greater sanity. In the 1947 preface to the third edition of Science and Sanity, Korzybski wrote, we need not blind ourselves with the old dogma that human nature cannot be changed, for we find that it can be changed. However, in the opinion of a majority of psychiatrists, the tenets and practices of general semantics are not an effective way of treating patients with psychological or mental illnesses. While Korzybski considered his program to be empirically based and to strictly follow the scientific method, general semantics has been described as veering into the domain of pseudoscience. Starting around 1940, university English professor S.I. Hayakawa, uh, speech professor Wendell Johnson, speech professor Irving J. Lee, and others assembled elements of general semantics into a package suitable for incorporation into mainstream communication circular. Uh, the Institute of General Semantics, which Krabisky and co-workers founded in 1938, continues today. General semantics as a movement has waned considerably since the 1950s, although many of its ideas live on in other movements, such as neurolinguistic programming and rational emotive behavior therapy. We were we were uh, they're they're in the chat um, and they're talking about they're talking about Tom Cruise. Um, we 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 love Tom Cruise. Who doesn't love Tom Cruise? Oh man, who doesn't? Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, he's just he's 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 just fun. Um and we're about to we're about to shift gears yet again. So what we'll what we'll say now, we'll we'll try to we'll try to satisfy everybody's curiosity. What we intend to do in this episode is talk about the foundation, the origin, the beginning of, of this religion. Um and we're going to talk about the general mythology, the theology of of this of this cult. Um, and then what we're going to do is next week we're going to talk about some of the individuals. Um, today we're talking about some L. Ron Hubbard, but there's so much more, you guys. There's so this, much stuff surrounding. This was going Mr. to be. Yeah, I mean, this was going to be one episode, and it was going to cover it all: Miscavige and Cruz and Travolta and the whole deal. Um, but as you start looking into it, it's there's just too much information. And I, I don't even know that two episodes is enough. We're already an, an hour and 15 minutes into this, and we haven't even got to the, the good stuff that we promised at the beginning. Right, right. Uh, so we're going we're gonna to continue on and give you guys like a good rundown baseline. And then next week, uh, we'll, do, we'll do the rest of L. Ron Hubbard. Uh, he's got this amazing military career that's just delightful to learn about. Um, some of the, some of the later stuff in his life, his misogyny and abuse, uh, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to talk about how Scientology became a religion, how it actually gained that, 
um, that label under American law so that the IRS wouldn't tax him. We're going to talk about David Miscavige. Uh, he's, again, one of the most fascinating people that, that I'm aware existing. I mean, this guy is, is so, so nuts. Uh, and then we'll talk about uh, we'll talk about John Travolta. We'll talk about Tom Cruise. We'll talk about probably Marty Rathbun. Some of the people that have that have left the left the church. There's a lot of information on that already. Some documentaries. There's a series going on. It might even still be on the air that talks to some of these people. We don't want to hit that too awful hard, but we do want to um, fill in all of the blanks that we leave in this episode, and we want to uh, uh, give you uh, some more information about the about the about the the deeper stuff because. A lot of people can tell you a few basic things about Scientology. It's fascinating, and we want to give you uh, a deeper understanding. Um, you, should, you should follow us at ismpodcast underscore on Twitter and on Periscope. Right now, the Periscope is live. We're going to shout out Young Athlon 399 who is helping us scope that right now. Cat is Cat is helping us uh, by, uh, by directing some of the comments and questions from those platforms to us so that we can stay engaged with you all. Follow me at Dopinephrine on Twitter and Periscope. Scott is L Dudorino. That's E-L-D-U-D-E-I-R-E-N-O. And if you want to call and be on the show, if you've got a question or a comment, you can get a hold of us at 646-564-9551. Now, before we proceed into this next subject... We have a disclaimer. L. Ron Hubbard said that anyone who was exposed to this information would casually free will through it, become a chronic insomniac, then get sick and die. Much of the mythology we are going to explain has been labeled as too dangerous for simple dissemination to the public. Its access is restricted to OT3s, people who have reached a very high level in the Scientology system. If you are not an OT3 or above, the Church of Scientology believes hearing the following is detrimental to your health. Been warned. Uh, well, and it's good that you put that up there because uh, when he wrote, you know, um, Excalibur, guys are just throwing themselves out of the windows right in front of him. So you know that as he refines his, uh, the knowledge of it, it's just going to be too much for the, the, uh, the common man to, to, uh, to be able to handle you're going to need to buckle up for this stuff, guys. It's, it's, it's intense. I would, uh, I would sign your last will and testament. Now Uh, you might want to just disengage from the show completely. This is not something to just be taken lightly. It's not for us simple people. This is only for OT threes and above. The only reason we had this information is uh, people like Marty Rathman that you talked about before and other, other uh, members, former members of the church that have left. So, um, it's time to get into Xenu and Thetans. Long before Xenu decided to turn Earth into a prison planet for everyone that he thought would rebel against his regime, there were disembodied energies floating throughout a universe of emptiness. In a work called Factors, 1953, Scientology founder Ellen Hubbard describes the inception of Theta, or the energy that creates life itself. According to Scientology scriptures, in the beginning was a decision and the decision was to be. From that point, this life energy came into existence with nothing else around. Eventually, it wanted something to look at, so it extended a viewpoint, thereby creating dimension. There were other life forms, which also started extending their viewpoints. 
once they discovered each other, they decided to collaborate as a committee and create a universe called the Theta universe for them to live in. Out of boredom, they created the MEST universe. Remember the MEST, matter, energy, space, and time universe. The MEST universe is a universe that we live in today. Okay. I'm sure that everybody followed that perfectly. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. So this is, this is the origin story. According to Scientology, Christians think that God just spoke it into being, let there be light. Science explains it through the process of the big bang. There are various competing ways of explaining this. There, there are there are tribes that that think that there was a great turtle that swam to the, the bottom of the ocean <laughs> and brought up little bits of dirt and added that to the surface until eventually it built a continent. And and these people weren't thinking of like stars and stuff, but it's still their origin story. The origin story of Scientology, you know, comes from the 1950s. And it explains that in the beginning, there was a decision, not a word. And, this and the light decision was, was to be. Uh, this kind of to be. This kind of like answers the question that um, we often ask with this: Where did God come from? Well, he's just like, well, I'm going to be now, and and then was. Right. I, I was just thinking as I uh, I read through this um, just now was it kind of made more sense this time around when I was thinking about that uh, the the eight tenets or the eight. Um, points of the of the cross and there was that part where it says you know um the the survival instinct to survive as insects or animals or whatever or to survive as beauty or whatever so i it's kind of referring to that life that life force that life energy just wants to survive wants to be so it it just decided to be then it was and then it decided that it wanted to survive and do that as several different things. Anything that is tangible that we can view is just a form of that life energy surviving. Sure. It, it, it also plays back into the idea of, of the self. Um, Scientologists often talk about how it's about empowering you as an individual. You don't go and, and pray and join a club and all of that. You're supposed to be gaining tools so that you can you can express yourself better, so that you can you can become uh, more self-aware, more powerful. Um, and this kind of plays into that, where where the very first thing was a self-decision. Something it, it's it's almost a play on the I think, therefore I am. I desire right. to become, and therefore I became. Is kind of the the notion here. And there's the um, the god of the self because the eighth dynamic is the urge toward survival through the supreme being, you know, or or forever surviving forever. Somehow, the 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 life force will can become godlike in some way. Right, gaining abilities that we think of as supernatural. That, right. Okay, so. We've got this kind of sort of life force thing. It decides that it wants to exist. Therefore, it does. It gets bored. So it starts creating dimension. Somehow, 
there were other life forms. That's all it says. Just somehow. Yeah. Somehow there, there are were other there were other life forms. So he he's this this original life force is looking into the dimension that it's just created out of boredom and discovers that there are other life forms there as well. Um, they begin to extend their viewpoints. Once they discover each other, they decide to collaborate as a committee and create a universe called the Theta Universe. So everything, everything is, I mean, there's one, it's almost you begin solipsistically, you determine that you want to exist, you open your eyes, the simple yeah. act of doing so has created a plane in which you can exist. It is populated with other beings that uh, are like you. They're also extending their, um, their viewpoint and creating dimension. So together, all of you are expanding your viewpoint, creating a dimension for you to exist in and, and look around in. And yet there isn't a universe yet. Right. There isn't actually a universe yet. All they've got is dimension. Okay. Then they create the Theta universe for themselves. The Theta universe would presumably be a place of pure thought. Yes, the, the pure consciousness. Okay. Now, now I I love this because it says out of boredom. <laughs> they create. We're, we you know we always talk about like uh, well we like humans we we kind of talk about. Um, like transcending, like I'll become a being of pure thought. That's like existentialism. Like you, you leave right. the confines of this, of this boring place in order to achieve a state of perfect thought. They did it in reverse. They had that. They, they started was, with that. They just it was boring. That's, them. that's day one. You're a transcendent <laughs> being of pure thought. <laughs> Make it bold. Uh, in game. Go. Right. <laughs> we started at the end. This is boring as shit. So they create uh, matter, energy, space, and time. That seems like a good idea. They just invent these ideas as a committee. And then I guess they saw it and it was good. That's the universe in which we live, the mess universe. But then one day, this committee started calling people before it and banishing them to the mess universe without explanation. Feeling too much shame to fight back, the banished Thetans followed orders and left. Shame. They were they were ashamed because the committee decided Said, to banish them. This, it says, "Go to this lesser world that you were with us when we created our our universe, and then the 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 matter, space, and time universe, and that's kind of below us. And we're going to send you there." And they they were just like, "Aw," but didn't hide it at all. <laughs> I they they're they're bored, so they create this other place, and then they banish people they don't like to it. That's kind of like sentencing somebody to watch TV all day. <laughs> I mean, they're they're so ashamed that oh, we don't get to stay here in the boring place that we couldn't stand. Too bad, and they go to the mess. Yeah. All right, all right, we don't. <laughs> we're making fun, and that's because it fucking deserves to be made fun of. It's just uh, so crazy. Uh, but so they're they're banished. Um, but in their banishment, they become bored in the mess universe. So they start to create life on planets. Um, I guess you know planets just exist in the matter in the mess universe. They're just already planets. Um, so in their boredom, they they start to create life on these planets, and they make bodies. The, the, they make the bodies that they create go to war with other bodies created by other Thetans who must apparently been banned there as well. Uh, frustrated by losing 
some of the Thetans taught their bodies how to capture other Thetans without realizing that they were teaching these bodies how to capture themselves. Now, I'm trying to wrap my mind around that sentence for five hours. But in some cases, the meat bodies revolted, and in other cases, both Thetans became trapped. And this refers to one of his earlier uh, science fiction works, uh, History of Man in 1952. So he's, he's taking elements from his science fiction writings and just putting them right into his religion. Anything that he wrote previously might as well just make it fact. I, I, I wonder – I mean this guy was a true believer. We, we don't want to make it out to seem like uh, L. Ron Hubbard was just out to screw people over. He was out to screw people over for sure, but he I, – I, I think there's, there's, enough, there's enough information that we can demonstrate that he really, really believed this stuff, even though well, I th- he knew that he had created it. Right. I think that that experience under the, you know, the nitrous oxide and the dental procedure where he believed himself to die or, you know um, – whatever, maybe there's some complications, but he has this this hallucination because then he, you know, later on sits down at a typewriter and just, just spews it out. You know, just, it just comes to him. A caliber just comes blowing out of him from whatever he saw during that, that state. So I I think you're right. I think he probably did truly believe it, but why not capitalize on it and, and get that fame that I wanted anyway, that money that I was so yearning for anyway. It's just a shame that he did such a poor job in being able to describe it. I wonder if he, if in his, if in his mind, it made a lot more sense, and he just felt like he didn't have the words to. I mean, he's he's. It's almost like he just kind of gave up. Like he's writing it, and he just says stuff like, "Out of boredom, they decided to do X." You know, he he right. it's Somehow there were other beings. He doesn't even even take a shot uh, at explaining it. He doesn't even try. Um, these these beings are are bored, and so they just start creating bodies so that they can go to war with each other. Yeah, they, they like the game of it. They they think it's good sports to create life just to watch it. This sounds like like Yahweh. It does, because uh, there's chosen people, and then there's the other people, and. You know, when you go back to the origin stories of, of Yahweh and Elohim, we're talking about several gods. And let us make man in our image. And then it must be for the game of, you know, what God do you follow? What God do I follow? And who's the chosen people? And whose land is whose? And it was good sport for the gods. All right. There were various methods used to trap a thetan. But the common denominator was curiosity. I like this. They're easily bored and they're curious. Yeah. They're 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 troublemakers, but they're they're a little human like. They're they're curious about things, they have questions. I'm not sure how much curiosity you can have about something that you yourself created, but they're very curious. They want more. They're always bored. The Thetan would be attracted to a pole that gave off a kind of energy and he would get stuck to it. Or there, there was again a, his, uh, I'm sorry, but there's again that uh, I'm not going to bother to explain it. It's a kind of energy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't, I don't pole. need to. 
Just think of a pole. <laughs> it's not a stripper pole or a barber pole. It's just a pole, and there's a kind a of energy, and Thetans stick to it. That it works. They stick to it. Or, or this is the other. This is the alternative. You can get a box, which a Thetan would get stuck inside while trying to find out what was in it. So you just create a box, and Thetans can't can't bear to leave a box unopened. I guess they got to know what's inside the box. So they would go and try to try to open it. And when they would try to open it, the traps made use of the energy beams that Thetans give off. These beams have specific waves used to interact with objects in the physical universe. Um, this is from the Philadelphia Doctorate Course, Lecture 32, Flows, Dispersals, and Ridges, and Lecture 33, uh, Anatomy of the Genetic Entity. So while the Thetan itself is not something that can be trapped, the energy he uses to interact with the universe can be used to trap it. This sentence, God damn it, I hate this sentence. So while the Thetan itself is not something that can be trapped, the energy he uses to interact with the universe can be used to trap it. It's a contradictory statement. If it cannot be trapped, then it can't be trapped. You're inventing but traps yet, to capture things that can't be trapped, and yet you can use their energy to trap them. Having been defeated, the Thetans assumed the identity of the bodies they had created. Whether they were robot, doll, insect, or meat bodies. Doll bodies are the little gray men that everyone talks about. <laughs> he just throws that in. Yeah. Just right after a sentence explaining the four kinds of bodies. By the way, well, it's doll bodies. Way, it seems like another way to... You've heard of that. You've heard of those (laughs) outside of my writing. So you know that it must be true. You've heard of nuclear physics, right? Well, I studied that. (laughs) You know, little gray men. You heard of Puerto Rico? Everyone talks about. I was the first guy to survey the whole place. (laughs) You heard of Puerto Rico? (laughs) I invented Puerto Rico. (laughs) Good God. Doll bodies are the little green men, the little gray men that everyone talks about, you know. So you've explained that. That's been bothering people. So we'll go ahead and in one sentence, we'll explain what little gray men are. Boom. Eventually, done. the Thetans just done. Eventually, the Thetans <laughs> discovered that the meat bodies had a one-up on all the other types of bodies. This is the term he uses: a one-up, a one-up on all the other types of bodies, because they could experience physical pleasures. The physical pleasure is what eventually caused Thetans to get stuck in meat bodies because they enjoyed it so much. That's from the Philadelphia Doctorate Course Lecture 9, Anatomy of Processing, Energy Phenomena Sensation. So there are four types of bodies, robots, dolls, insects, and meat. And only one of them can experience pleasure. So presumably, robots, dolls, and insects don't have nerve endings. Yeah. Uh, Dolls, little gray men, don't experience physical pleasure. Those little, those little, you know, that everybody talks about the little gray men. They don't, they don't have, they don't experience pleasure at all. They, they apparently still have tactile abilities. They've got appendages and and, and limbs and stuff. Uh, right. I mean, you, you guys, you guys know. Everybody talks about these people. They've got arms, um, but I right. guess they're not able to like grasp objects well because they don't have nerves. 
Yeah, they don't have uh, sexual organs, right? They're always depicted as smooth, and they're always uh, abducting um, humans and and doing sexual experiments on them. So maybe it's true. Maybe they're just uh, sexually repressed. They're just frustrated, and that's why they're always anal probing people when they, <laughs> you know, kidnap like them the way out of the woods. Meat bodies uh, express themselves sexually. Right. Okay, so eventually, in the Milky Way galaxy. These people, these, these thetans trapped in bodies, created a society. It's much closer to the center of the galaxy than we are. This is the society from which we originate. This solar system, ours, first came to the attention of that society when one of their invader forces discovered that there was a planet in our solar system with minerals they needed. They destroyed the planet, which would later become the asteroid belt, so that they could mine it. They also developed a trading outpost on Mars. That's practically common knowledge. Oh, yeah. They destroyed the planet, which would later become an asteroid belt so they, they could mine it. They also developed a trading outpost on Mars. Are you noticing the stream of consciousness aspect of this? That he's, also he's, developed. This is a long trend. This is not new for him. He's He's writing the most important things ever written. He's writing things that are of incredible value to the human species. He's answering all the questions of how things came about. And he's just inserting sentences wherever the fuck. They also developed a trading outpost on Mars, period. They also developed a trading outpost on Mars. Yeah, just that's that's, um, secondary. (laughs) Of course you know that part, but, you know, they're the ones that stick it in here. Toss it right at the end. It's it's a new religion. It's going to be even more remarkable than, than the Bible. And he's using terms like meat bodies had a one up on all other types of bodies. Right. Somehow. Fine literature. It's not. Okay. Later, and this is a character that he doesn't bother like explaining in any kind of length. Just later, as if he's referencing it. Later, Zenu would call forth all the artists and criminals of his society for tax assessments, freeze them, and place them all in the spacecraft shaped like DC-8 airplanes to send them here. He would implant them with memories of various religions while wiping their knowledge of history completely clean. Oh, dear. Okay. So, Zenu called forth all of the artists and criminals. Well, I mean, who would you, who would you uh, lump together? When you're trying criminals to... and judges, I mean, no, that no. doesn't fit. Doesn't work. When you're trying to make a more perfect society, you got to get rid of all of the criminals because you want your society to be free of crime. Also, get rid of the artists. That makes sense. Yeah. Well, the criminal part, I can get behind. There's an idea of. We should probably separate criminals from the rest of society. Mm-hmm. While you're at it, throw all those damn artists in there. It's a little <laughs> bit perplexing. <laughs> it's a little perplexing. Indeed. Okay. All right. Okay. So he put he, – okay. He called them forth for tax assessments, but they weren't actually tax assessments. He froze them, stuck them on spacecraft shaped like DC-8 airplanes, and sent them here. He would implant them with memories of various religions while wiping their knowledge of history completely clean. This implant – was created using the help of psychiatrists 
who are his key to keeping the society under his control. However, he knew this may not be a permanent solution, as the memories may wear off over time. So he destroyed the atmosphere on Mars and killed everyone on the planet so he could put an implant station there for disembodied souls to return to. He also placed one on Venus, and there is one in Africa. And there's one in Africa. Another tack on to your, all this important information. And then, by the way, there's one just around the corner. You, you, you got to have one in Africa. Maybe you, maybe you can't, maybe you can't make, make the drive to Venus from Mars. <laughs> yeah, I can't get to Venus this weekend, but luckily there's one in the Congo. There's a drive-through right in Africa. <laughs> you, can just, you can just hit the original continent. You're good. Okay. All right. So apparently Xenu understood the power of Dianetics because that's the only way to get the memories to wear off. It doesn't happen naturally. You have to go to Scientology and use uh, 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 auditing with an audit. e-meter. Yeah. You got you to get audited so that you can find these engrams. Mm-hmm. By the way, when we say engram, that means, that means memory. That means memory typically or at least often – from a previous life. Engrams are memories that's clogging up one of the three portions of the mind. Zenu must have been aware of this. And so he created, you know, depots in our solar system so that he could reinforce the implants using, um, using these bases on Mars, Venus, and Africa. Uh, this is from the role of earth lecture, 1952. I love that we're sourcing it. I love that we're taking the time to source this so that everybody at home right. can do their own independent research on the topic. We wouldn't want to get any of this wrong. The no. whole thing falls apart if you get part of this wrong. What if we had accidentally said that the, uh, that the, that the one on earth is in Asia, people would be, you right. know, we'd lose all credibility. <laughs> okay. The DC eights come to earth and Xenu drops all of the frozen people from the tax audits into volcanoes yeah. and detonates them with nukes. And then he placed a screen around the solar system to prevent anyone from escaping and also to prevent transmissions outside the solar system from reaching us. Now, outside of the solar system, there's a system of buoys that will be activated should anyone exit the solar system without permission. Once activated, these buoys will... Uh, alert Xenu, and he will return to destroy the planet again, forcing us to start over. God damn it. All right. Um, and I wanted to go uh, just back up to the uh, when he did the fake tax um, assessments and then actually froze the people and took them to volcanoes to blow them up. Uh, he froze them by um, injecting them in the lungs with a mixture of alcohol and glycol. That, that would so that work. Paralyzed, right? that, that paralyzed them, and then he froze them. I'm not sure the freezing method. Probably liquid nitrogen, I mean, but I'm just guessing. Okay. He's, he's trying to get rid of artists and criminals, as one does. He calls them in for it's, a tax audit. It's interesting that the criminals showed up. It really is. Why would they uh, – did he pass a law saying they had to go? Why would they follow it? Right. Why would they follow that? They're criminals. Oh. One wonders if they were in line like, wait a minute. We're all criminals. <laughs> what are we wait doing? a minute. <laughs> <laughs> this might be some kind of trick. I don't know if you've ever seen like old episodes of Cops where they used to like 
they couldn't serve warrants because people would run. So they would just like set up in some warehouse that they rented and they would send out like flyers saying, you want a TV? And then the guys would come in and then they would arrest. <laughs> Are you who's your driver's license? Yep, that's you. You're under arrest. <laughs> right. <laughs> they always fall for it. Right. Yeah. And, and we're not talking about like, you know, a handful of people here. No, all of the criminals. All of the criminals. There was the, the Galactic Federation that Xenu is, is the head of consisted of 22 sons. Uh, with 76 inhabited planets. So that's like three or four inhabited planets per sun. We're talking about entire planets of people here. Um, the aliens were supposedly similar in appearance to ourselves as we are now. The average populations of these planets was 178 million or 250 million on average. Both figures are quoted in the same line on the handwritten OT3 document. Uh, we, 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 okay, so you're, it's contradictory inside of the exact same... Sentence, but you know, whatever it's 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 somewhere. Let's just call it two hundred million. We'll split the difference. Two hundred million on average um, per planet. There was an overpopulation problem for Xenu, and there seems to also be a slight contradiction about whether or not he was doing it purely to solve an overpopulation problem that Xenu had, or if he was trying to get rid of Criminals well, there was, yeah, and there was another thing saying that he, Earth was uh, the prison planet where he was putting, you know, um, Zeno's placing people that he believed were going to try and um, take away his regime, take away his power, and, and uh, work against him. If the story is to be believed... This would have happened to about 4 trillion people. The story makes it clear that the actual corpses of people were transported to Earth. Supposing each DC-8 I, – I, I mean we haven't, even, we haven't even remarked on this. He had he fucking DC-8. Yeah, DC-8. It was identical to a DC-8 in every way save the fans, meaning the, the turbine engines. So you wouldn't have that in space. No, of course not. DCH fly right through space. There's no friction once you get it going. <laughs> once you get it going. <laughs> Supposing each DC-8 could carry 200 frozen bodies in refrigerated units at a time, and the excess population per planet was 100 million, then 500,000 DC-8 space plane flights would have been required to ship these people to Earth. If the return trip were six weeks, as mentioned in the assist lecture, in relation to the three weeks from cultists to Earth... And if this were all achieved in six months, then each planet would have required 125,000 DC-8 space planes. That's, That's a, a lot of space planes. That's a mm. big, big fleet. I, I bring this up because this is ridiculous, and it's really easy. It's really easy to laugh at. You kind of have to. It's necessary to stay sane. Maybe that's the trick. When that's you're when trick. you're exposed, you got to laugh at it. Otherwise, when you're exposed you, too early. Yeah, you, you just throw, throw yourself right out of the window of the, of the skyscraper. You'll you'll go insane. You have to you have to inject a little bit of humor uh, if you're not an but OT that's a nice or above. Uh, scapegoat. It seems to me, just like um, with Christianity. Well, I'm not of the world, so if you're looking for worldly proof of me, you're not going to find it. If you if you're reading this before you're an OT three, no wonder you're laughing at it, just dismissing it. That makes sense. 
You're not right. an LT3 yet. You haven't been audited. You haven't lived. You haven't remembered your past lives. Of course, this is crazy to you. It's a nice, you know, pre-setup of this is totally true, but you're not going to get it because you're not in. It takes it takes because people believe this stuff. It takes a certain level of personal investment and conditioning to get to the point where with a straight right. face you're thinking, yeah, DC8s, that makes sense. They they put him in volcanoes and, and nuked him. That 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 makes sense to me. They if you're going to real. believe that, it's it's helpful. If that person is already in for a couple hundred thousand dollars and has already spent years uh, becoming right. you know somewhat reliant on the auditing process um, and is seeing this actually impact their real life so that you can you can get them to buy the rest of this. Well, especially with the things that we talked about earlier and the parts of it that are, are kind of intriguing, even, even to myself, where you're, you're a little bit more confident, you're more sure with your words, you communicate clearly with your loved ones, you just feel like a better person. You're going to start seeing, I'm sure, out of that kind of behavior, successes in your job, successes in your friendship, and you're going to, well, where, when did this start happening? Oh, when I started practicing Dianetics. Mm. it's a confirmation bias at work and then like you're saying that investment of money and time already you you, you almost have no choice but to accept it or like the people we talked about Marty Rathman and others leave at some point because you just can't wrap your mind around it any longer we at informed secular minds believe that that people should believe in things that are true we think there is a long trend that is demonstrable in humanity of grand lies and extraordinary claims leading to sectarian violence. This is an extraordinary claim that leads at least to sectarian thinking. And so we would be remiss if we didn't take the time, even as we laugh and joke and jab to apply a level of counter-apologetics because it's also ridiculous when other religions make crazy statements. This seems funnier and weirder and stupider, but I don't know that it actually is. It's just newer. It's just less obvious in the world. You, you're, you're not... You're not hit with this all of the time. You didn't grow up going to Sunday school learning about Xenu. Instead, you went to Sunday school learning about talking snakes and magic fruit. There well, is not much of a difference. Right. It kind of, kind of seems to me like it's, it's just newer. It, it's younger, right? It's like America's newer, younger, and I'm, I'm sure we seem kind of stupid and whatever to you know, European countries who have been around longer. Newer things take time to adjust to. In the interest of presenting some counter-apologetics, we, we just, we just um, showed you the math on how many DC-8s you would have to build in a very short amount of time. Um, you've got 76 planets, each requiring 125,000 airplanes on overpopulated planets, which would require, one assumes, landing strips or some kind of facility from which they can be launched. Um, 
this this doesn't add up. It, it, it even even if you suspend all your disbelief and, and go, okay, but people believe it. People are taking it seriously, like you have to do with Christianity or Mormonism or Hinduism or, or Islam. This is another religion for all intents. It's it's just as valid as those belief systems when it comes to the accuracy of its claims. So we have to use critical thought as we would with any other religion. Uh, we owe it to the people that are tempted to believe in this. We owe it to the people who currently do believe in this. Do the math. Figure out if you can understand how how this would how this would happen. Now, there's also the complete lack of archaeological evidence. According to this story, Zenu brought all of these corpses here, frozen in tubes, with their souls still intact. These thetans dropped them into specifically named volcanoes. 75 million years ago. These volcanoes didn't exist 75 million years ago. Right. Take basic geography. Volcanoes don't last that long. We're on the surface of a cooling planet. 75 million years ago, Pangaea was more or less intact. There were dinosaurs walking around for another 10 million years after that. Yeah, there were no human societies warring with each other. 75 million years ago, the biggest mammal on the planet was the size of a shrew. There was nothing close to human beings around yet. You can't just introduce meat bodies 10 million years before the extinction of dinosaurs... And act like nobody's going to do a double take on that claim. There are other aspects of that same kind of behavior in his writings where he's just going to completely sidestep by by leaps and bounds, not even try to stay close to the scientific measure of time or... Or anything and say, well, you know, I'm going to disagree by a few million or a few hundred million and it'll be within the realm of believability. No, I'm going to go trillions over the, the amount of, of people, the amount of time, and I'm not even going to address it. L. Ron Hubbard asserts, Hubbard asserts that, that that original thing, that original I choose to be and therefore I exist – that that is the origin of the universe, and that it happened four quadrillion years ago. Four quadrillion. That, everybody in the world should hear that and go, nope, that's fucking stupid. But it is not more stupid than thinking that the Earth is 6,000 years old. Exactly. It's just as dumb. But we read this and we go, how idiotic, and we go about our day. There are people that are willing to believe in this. Can you imagine if this was a majority religion, if this was something being taken seriously by any large group of people, if they were insisting that we teach the controversy in biology class? Everybody would be up in arms. This is how I feel when the Texas Board of Education says that we need to Uh, spend just as much time teaching intelligent design to eighth graders as we do the theory of evolution. One is factual. One is complete and utter bullshit. 
but you've got enough people believing in a myth that they want it actually taught as academia in the public education system. Just pull out the 6,000-year-old claim and the talking snake. And it's just as ridiculous. It's just as dumb. He's saying that 71 million years before the emergence of anything resembling man, a bunch of men were dropped into volcanoes that could not have existed and were then nuked. Um, Hamilton on Periscope said that this is the sunken cost fallacy, the the misconception that you make rational decisions based on the future value of objects, uh, investments, and experiences. The truth is your decisions are tainted by the emotional investments you accumulate, and the more you invest in something, the harder it becomes to abandon it. Mm. Now, yes. what we were talking about for how you have to – this is why you got to be an OT3 before they tell you this part of it. They need you to be invested. Well said. Thank you, uh, Robert, for putting that in there. Yeah. That's exactly it. Wow. Rational decisions based on the future value of objects, investments, and experiences. Um. We're just about out of time, but I wonder if I have, if I have time for this, for this, the last claim that we'll get to tonight. It says that there is a system of buoys that will be activated should anyone exit the solar system without permission. Once activated, Xenu will return and destroy the planet again, forcing us to start over. And how long does it take Xenu to get here? Uh, six weeks. Six weeks. Six That's weeks right. for him to get here. Okay. You guys know what Vo- the Voyager project was, right? In the 70s, you had Voyager 1 and Voyager 2. This was the thing. Carl Sagan was kind of sort of involved. They made the golden record with recordings of humanity on it. Launched it out. It's really really cool. It's a neat idea. It's a little it's a little like it's kind of cute looking back, but the idea was we were going to we were going to shoot these things way out. They were going to study some planets on the way out of the solar system, but we don't have a way of bringing them back. We don't have a way of like steering them back towards us. So they're just still going. Voyager 1 may or may not have already passed out of our solar system. If it is not, it is very, very close, and we will get further confirmation in the next few years. It takes a year to transmit information from Voyager 1 to us. If Scientology is correct, the buoys have already detected or are about to detect the Voyager 1 spacecraft. If Scientology is correct, we must assume that Voyager 1 has not quite reached the boundary of our solar system yet, but is about to. And Xenu will be here promptly to kill us all. Yeah, we got about a month and a half. On that note, I'm going to leave everybody to their nightmares tonight. <laughs> we're going to do another episode next Wednesday, and we're going to fill this in with a little bit more context. We're going to tell you a little bit more about L. Ron Hubbard. We're going to talk about some more of these extraordinary beliefs, and we're going to talk about some of the figures in Scientology, including the celebrities that everybody knows about. This has been the Informed Secular Minds podcast. This was episode 12, still rocking and rolling. We want to we wanna thank Scott L. Duderino, E-L-D-U-D-E-I-R-E-N-O, for being the guest host again this week. Follow him on Twitter. And on Periscope, thank you to Young Athlon399 for running the scope for us this week. Guys, we need you to go to patreon.com 
Flash Informed podcast and help us out so that we can keep making awesome content on the show. We thank you as always for listening and we hope that you have a wonderful night. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.